You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Well, Chris, we know that uh, the Chicago Bears lost. There's not much to talk about there, but I did want to run something else past you that had to do with your city. Um because it, it was it was really interesting to me. So so listen to this, Chris, and I just want to see what you have to say. Um, according to an and this is from the New York Times, according to an annual study by pest control company Orkin, Chicago Chicago is America's rattiest city for the eighth year running. New York came in second. Now, one thing I do want to say before I, I have you respond to this, and rattiest meaning by it has the most rats. It has the biggest rat problem. Number one, I want to say this. I don't believe that it has more rats than New York City. I just don't believe. Last time I was in New York, I stepped out of my hotel room and I saw like two rats run across the sidewalk. There's trash everywhere. And I'm not trying to come down hard on my New York folks, but y'all know there's a rat issue. I have a hard time believing Chicago is worse. But the fact that y'all are even up there and you've been number one for the eighth year running, I think bears somebody from Chicago uh, putting up some sort of defense or maybe there is no defense. What's going on here, Chris? So I did not see that. I don't know how I didn't see that. But uh, if we might be talking, you know, we got to look at what Orkin did. We might be talking rats per capita because um, on, on that on that front, we might have it. So I actually have uh, something of a uh, of a rat theory uh, that I, I, I need this research to help prove it, because I always tell people uh, that we need to get back to having mayors uh, like the old school mayors who really saw the job uh, as as running the city, right? Not a big policy job or a national platform for like speaking international politics, but just running the city, keeping the place clean and smooth. I personally feel like uh, the daily that I knew Richard M, like that was his thing. Like he wasn't so much concerned about being all involved in national politics. It was running, uh, running the city. And since then, we've had a couple of mayors who really did see the city, uh, that mayor's job in a different light. And you saw the number of rats tick up, especially in downtown. And I said, this is a sign uh, that you need somebody uh, who's like, they want to keep the city clean. So now I have some research to back it up. Yeah, man, I'll make sure we, as always, we'll put that in our show notes for y'all to see. Um, and, you know, we kind of joke about it, but that's that's a serious health issue. Right. Really- and we also know that when you're talking about rats, that's going to impact the most vulnerable, the poorest people in the city. Yeah. Um, so for these major cities to be having these rat infestations and, and according to what I, I've been reading, it got worse during the pandemic. So yeah. in 2021, reports of rodents in New York City that were reported in New York City, those reports pre-pandemic 
were way, you know, below what it became during the pandemic. Uh, so that's something else to talk about. But honestly, this is a serious issue. Like this, this is not something small. You hear stories of back in the day. I know what, you know, uh, rats biting babies and stuff like that. And we know in certain areas, certain places, that's not going to be acceptable. Yeah. And the people are going to stand up and say, you're not going to have rats in my house and y'all not taking care of what's going on. Uh, yeah. So it, it is an issue. Even in the streets, man, like this is you didn't used to see this, but now you do see like you'll see a rat walking down the uh, sidewalk in uh, in downtown Chicago, which is something that you would you would never uh, see back in the day. That's crazy. Now, let me give you the top 15. Right. So Atlanta was not in the top 10 proud of that, but we were in the top 15. Here, here are the here's the list of the rattiest cities per The New York Times. Chicago's number one, then New York. Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, Denver, hmm, Seattle, Minneapolis, Boston, Atlanta at 14, and Indianapolis at 15. Uh, so we've got some work to do because there are a lot of people honestly suffering based on uh, that rat infestation. And folks need to, as you said, I couldn't agree more. City government is about services. There's other stuff we can talk about, but at the end of the day, it is about delivering services. My my mentor, uh, the dean of the city council, C.T. Martin, always told me that it's about can you deliver services to the people? So yeah, interesting sure. conversation. Yeah. Again, we'll put that in our show notes, uh, but but something seriously needs to be done about that. Chris, you, were you going to say something? National, yeah, I was just going to say maybe we'll host a national summit because um, folks do need to get back to that. Uh, folks were coming up to me. We're getting ready to have a municipal election. And asking me to run for an automatic seat, and I'm like, I'm I'm like a policy guy, and that's not a policy role. Like that's a straight services role. So, and people ask me that, man, should I run for city council? Should I run to be an alderman? And I'm like, you got to think about if you just want it. It shouldn't really be a, a fancy job, right? It's like you got to think about if you want to focus on how you're getting services to people and the unsexy things that that these folks have to focus on, which God bless them. You know, there are a lot of people that do it well, but it's certainly not for everybody, especially if you're doing it from from certain positions. I mean, it's about putting your head down and getting the work done. Yeah, um, I really say like uh, the job is hustling garbage cans. And yeah, it's real. You don't want to hustle garbage cans. Then don't run for that position. Yep. Yep. And and we're thankful that some people pick up and do it. It's, it doesn't mean it's less important or that's not important. It just means that uh, it's important to have a perspective on what it's really uh, about. Now, Chris, you know that we are making a big announcement today. We've been waiting for this for a long time. This is something that I'm really excited about. It's something I think our artist audience is going to be excited about. So hold on, listen through the episode. We're making a big announcement in regard to the and campaign and some folks that we're partnering with to do something that I think really could change the landscape if done right. So pay attention, stay close. Uh, in our In our second segment, we will be talking about this big announcement. But before we get into that, y'all know what it is. As always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Today is Giving Tuesday, and we're recording on Giving Tuesday. If you want to give to the Ann Campaign, you can go to annecampaign.org slash donate to become a part of the movement. Don't just stand on the sidelines. We need you. Without Christians who are serious about what we're doing, there is no Ann Campaign. So we need you to contribute so we can grow and so we can get more done. But you know what it is. Grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think, not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but think like a Christian. 
Uh, let's start off with some Bible here. I want to go to Acts 20 verses 25 through 27. Acts 20 verses 25 through 27. And it says, and indeed, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Chris, I'm going to be honest with you. I've been really frustrated this election cycle. Um, As you know, throughout our existence, the Ann campaign has deliberately tried to make Christians feel uncomfortable about being faithful partisans. We have gone out of our way to make Christians feel uneasy, to make Christians feel some type of way about outsourcing their public witness to ideological tribes. Now, for anybody who's been listening for a while, you know that we don't have a problem with Christians participating in party politics. There can be a strategic or practical advantage to that. But we have called in the question whether they can act like a dyed-in-the-wool Republican or a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat and simultaneously faithfully live the life of a born-again Christian washed in the blood of the Lamb. We've pointed out the difficulty of being on fire for Christ and at the same time being all in for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. We've suggested that being on fire for social justice and moral order means being at best, in many cases, a lukewarm partisan. And why have we done that, you ask? Well, we've done it because we honestly believe that you can't faithfully serve progressivism or conservatism in the public square and faithfully serve Christ. You cannot serve two masters. When in conflict, you'll hate the one or you'll hate the other. Many call themselves Christians, but when the compassion or the conviction of Jesus Christ is in tension with their cultural preferences or their ideological agenda, then they'll completely dismiss the Bible's conception of justice or moral order to stay in line with their secular tribe. We've taken this stance because we believe that uncritically following one side or the other prevents Christians from declaring the whole counsel of God. Because when we do so, when we take one side or the other, at some point we will be forced to shun Christian compassion or Christian conviction. Parties and ideologies can be helpful tools. I'm not saying that they can't be. But they are terrible masters. In Acts 20, Paul is giving a farewell to the Ephesians. He says that he's declared to them the whole counsel of God. Other versions say the whole will of God or the whole purpose of God. Here, Paul is saying that he has preached the fullness of God's revelation and truth. He didn't talk about some of the truth while running away from other truths because they were unpopular. He didn't talk about sexual ethics and then run away from compassion and justice. He didn't talk about helping the poor and then run away from declaring the sanctity of life. He declared the whole counsel of God. And in like manner, I believe the Christian public witness should reflect 
the whole counsel of God, that there's blood on our hands, Chris, when we support a party or an ideological tribe and say nothing about the wickedness therein. A Christian who promotes ideological conservatism but says nothing about its harshness and its partnership with racism is not proclaiming the whole will of God in the public square. A Christian who promotes progressivism yet says nothing about its aversion to absolute truth and its dismissal of unborn life is not proclaiming the whole will of God in the public square. Now, while most of us aren't capable, we don't have the bandwidth uh, to spend uh, our lives intensely advocating for every issue with biblical implications. We must make sure that we're not turning a blind eye or that we're not silent about the wickedness connected to our political and ideological affiliations. But again, Chris, this last election cycle has demonstrated that we're so caught up in these affiliations that we think it profits us to be silent on certain biblical principles so we won't make our party look bad. If I tell the truth, if I tell the truth about this or I hold them to a higher standard of compassion, then it'll help the other side. Too many Christians have come to hate moral order because it conflicts with the progressive agenda. They will rationalize abortion, rationalize gender ideology and rationalize the housing crisis just to make their side look better than it is. And too many Christians hate compassion and social justice because it conflicts with parts of the conservative agenda and it conflicts with their myths about America. They will dismiss racism. They will dismiss police brutality. They'll dismiss economic injustice just to make sure that the progressives don't score any points because that's the worst thing that could happen. That's unfaithful. And it's unfaithful because the goal in both of these instances is winning a political battle rather than glorifying God. When the goal should be to glorify God and promote human dignity and human flourishing in tangible ways while we're doing so. Yes, the Democratic Party supports abortion and that is wicked. It doesn't, however, justify dismissing all the wrongdoing on the right. Yes, the Republican Party has harbored racist and has compromised voter rights. That's wrong. That doesn't, however, justify dismissing all the wrongdoing on the left. I'm very compassionate. And y'all know this. I'm very compassionate about both of those issues. But they don't give me a pass to ignore other injustices and immorality within my tribe. Chris, can you speak into the idea of Christians turning a blind eye or dismissing the wickedness on their side? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of uh, first, just a, 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 an amen to uh, to what you just laid out, because a lot of us and I, I would imagine a lot of people who listen to the church politics podcast are a little bit more involved in politics uh, in your uh, local community, a little bit more interested in politics and a lot of us are uh, increasingly falling into that category where we are so invested in uh, a a party or an ideological tribe that we won't call these things out. And in that instance, I like to remind us that 
you know, I think politics is 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 at its core morally neutral, right? Like political parties uh, don't come together uh, primarily around a moral construct or moral framework. There are, you know, there's some some shared values there, but the reason political parties come together is to build political power and exercise influence in government. Uh, and so it's not to say that politics doesn't involve morality, but the 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 main job of a political party uh, is to build power and exercise influence. Uh, and so that's what the party, uh, that's what the parties become about, because that's what they're structured to do. And in its proper place, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but when you allow then your political affiliation to displace uh, your your faith affiliation, uh, then you get into big trouble because the party is going to move to exercise the most power. The party is going to move to have the most influence. And we must always be prepared uh, in those instances to say, for me, power and influence is not primary, right? For me, there's a higher uh, call, there's a higher standard um, and, and so I have to press forward with that higher call and that higher standard, even if it means it may compromise uh, the party's ability to build power or to exercise influence. Uh, and so I think if we remind ourselves of this, that the, the party is not here to make the world a better place. Right. Like that's that's not job one. Right now, it, it may be job two or three, and people may come into the party uh, with the mind that this is a vehicle that I can then use to make the world a better place. But just the actual institutional apparatus itself, it is not designed, and this is any political party, it's not designed to make the world a better place. It's designed to build power and exercise influence. Uh, and so then you must infuse that party with a moral ethic. And that's why it's important for, for believers uh, to speak into your own party. Uh, and, and I think that's the, the part that, that is breaking our politics right now because this, you know, and it's a lot of pressure from the parties and the leaders and the influencers, uh, you know, themselves, right? There is, I think, a, a goal and agenda to kind of, uh, atomize the the entire society. Don't have a lot of different people speaking uh, from a lot of different perspectives in various places, but actually just draw uh, a bunch of folks who say the same thing into you know very divided camps that don't really have that much contact with one another. Um, and and so we don't want to fall prey to that influence and to that agenda. You need lots of people in lots of different spaces who are able to infuse those spaces uh, with biblical ideas, Christian ideas in the Democratic Party, in the, the Republican Party, in all types of different spaces. We need to be infusing those spaces with this holistic Christian thought because it's going to make all of those spaces stronger. Uh, but the, the more we give in to this idea that the way you make the party strong or the way you make the space healthy is to just fall in line, don't challenge anything, uh, the more we're going to compromise our witness. And I think over the long term, and I know a lot of people might not be feeling this way right now because we just had an election, but I think if you if you put it 
not in the context of just one election, but try to look at it over the long term, I think we ultimately make our parties weaker. And, and if we continue down this road, we'll end up in a political environment one day, said the Lord Terry, where neither one of these parties has a lot of power, right? Because you don't make you don't make a, a space stronger by isolating the number of ideas that are able to to get life in that space. Um, and so, you know, your affection for Christ should should cause you to speak on these issues in your particular tribe and in your particular space, but also, you know, your affinity for your party um, and your your ideological group should also drive you to to bring these ideas because you don't get stronger by not having your ideas challenged. You get stronger by having your ideas challenged. And I think that's what we're called to do. Yeah. And I think what a lot of I think you made some really good points and what a lot of people don't get. And I really want to impress the other side or someone on the other side may be as bad as you say they are. Right. So we're not saying that every it's not that bad. Just just go along. No, no, no. There may be someone on the other side that's as bad as you say they are and they need to be opposed. Their presence, the presence of. Planned Parenthood and and their their agreement with the left, right? Uh, in Georgia, the 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 presence of someone like Herschel Walker and and what he's brought to this conversation may be as bad as you say it is. It does not justify you ignoring the negative negativity and bad policy and bad attitudes and immorality and injustice on your side of the conversation. That's what people don't get. If they're so bad, which your side is always going to emphasize how terrible the other side is, they may be right sometimes. Sometimes they're exaggerating. Many times they're exaggerating. It does not excuse you from your public witness being about the whole counsel of God. If if you're going to go to a rally and jump around for a candidate or for a certain cause, you should at least be able to soberly say, give us a critique about that call, about that party or about that candidate as well. And when Christians don't have, and that's the thing about that really got me upset about just the election cycle in general, the lack of sobriety when you can like a politician, you can really want the other side to lose, but there needs to be a certain sobriety, right? There needs to be a a certain outlook or a certain um, posture and tone that you maintain. So we're not just running around celebrating people who you know at some point are going to make decisions that we disagree with or that we should disagree with. But again, it all comes back to what I've said for years, this opposition view of politics. It's not that I love the Democratic Party. It's not that I love the Republican Party. It's that I hate the other side. And as long as I hate the other side, I can use this or that to dismiss what's going on in my side. And I'm just I'm just hoping that we begin to kind of see that and that we have Christians who are able to say, hey, yeah, I, I support that party. I support that candidate. I still have to render a critique because otherwise I'm indoctrinated. Otherwise, as we said before, I'm not declaring the whole counsel of God in my public witness. Yeah. Any more on that, Chris? Yeah. So only there's one other thing I wanted to, to note, and I, I, I think you'll agree with me on this what we're not saying is that your every move politically has to be like chock full of uh, kind of what I call what about isms, right? So every time I say something about X, I have to say something about Y, right? Like that's that's not what we're saying. In in the the broad spectrum though of your public life of your civic engagement, 
you can't just be sold out to one party, one tribe, so that so that it's unacceptable anywhere at any time to offer a critique uh, of what folks are doing. I, I kind of follow the rule uh, that they have in the airport, right? Like if you see something, say something, right? So when, when there's something obvious in my tribe particularly that needs to be called out, I feel a responsibility uh, to do that. If, so, if, if there are things that are happening outside of my view, if they're happening, you know, where I maybe have a view of it, but it's not, it, it doesn't gain my uh, uh, attention, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not out there always looking for things to beat up on people I work with. Um, and I don't have to, every time I say something about a particular candidate, leader, party, whatever, also have something bad to say about them, right? That's, that's not what we're saying. It's just you can't be so sold out that you find yourself in that camp where it's always unacceptable uh, to critique your party or your tribe because it might cost them something or it might help the other guy. Yep. That, that, that's a good word, man. It's not about equivocating every time that you state something, right? If the other side is wrong, you can state very clearly that, that it's wrong and put a period at the end of that. But in general, when you pick a side or when you are supporting a certain side and they do something wrong or they have a major part of their platform that is unbiblical, you need to at some point say something about it. You can't just ignore it like it's not there and act like your side is perfect. And that's and that's really what we're getting at, folks. We have an obligation not just to win, but to glorify God. And there are some political battles that you think are important that you can win and not glorify God if you're not. Uh, representing the love, truth, the compassion and conviction, the uh, justice and moral order of Christ. And that's what we're getting at. We will be right back with a big announcement about the AND campaign on the Church Politics Podcast. All right, Chris, uh, we are back on the Church Politics Podcast and we teased this a little, this a little bit, uh, but we have an announcement. And to some extent, Chris, the issue that we had just addressed in the last segment kind of led us to what we're about to announce in this segment. Um, We've been working on this in silence for quite some time, and I'm really excited about uh, this project. I think you guys are going to be really excited about this project. But before I reveal what it is, let me give you a little bit of historical context, because I think it'll help understand where, where, where we're coming from on this. Chris, in the book Slave Religion, the late historian Albert Rabateau discusses how many enslaved people, our ancestors, were forbidden from attending church or even praying. They could not attend church. They could not come together and pray and worship together. To pursue meaningful religious experience was to risk corporal punishment. So if me and Chris got together, we went out and tried to pray or worship God together. We probably would get beaten. Right. As a consequence, the enslaved would have spirit filled worship meetings in hidden locations at opportune times, unbeknownst to the slaveholders. What I'm trying to tell you is that the first iteration of the black church was created under the shroud of secrecy. Historians like Rabato, C. Eric Lincoln, uh, E. Franklin Frazier would go on to call this 
the invisible institution. The first black church has been referred to as the invisible institution because it had to happen while they were kind of in hiding. Now, the invisible institution would not only thrive and distinguish itself from the perverted versions of Christianity promoted by slaveholders, but also would grow to become what E. Franklin Frazier called a nation within the nation. Within our community, it was a fountainhead. It was the it was the center of economic cooperation, education and social and political life in the black community. The church was the nucleus, the brain and the backbone that sustained the people who were enduring demonic injustices. The Ann campaign has often talked about how the public witness of black Christians and not just black Christians, but politically homeless Christians in general has been rendered invisible. It doesn't fit into the false conservative progressive binary. So those who benefit from that binary and try to force everybody into that binary have tried to erase our witness to make it seem illegitimate or to simply co-opt it. Well, uh, we are determined and the Ann campaign has for long been determined to make sure that our unique witness will never again be invisible. So we've been working with leaders like Dr. Esau McCauley, Lisa Fields of the Jew 3 Project, John Richards, who you've heard on this podcast, Amos Jones, Philip Holmes and others to create what we're calling the invisible two words, the invisible institution newsletter, also known as IVI. We think that our audience and Christians in general need more Bible centered, gospel centered political commentary, policy breakdowns, theology and politics theology and political discussions, we need to provide more of that. The Church Politics uh, podcast audience has grown. It's grown bigger than I, I thought it would ever grow. It, it is almost seems like everywhere I go, there are people saying they listen to the podcast, and we greatly appreciate that. And we're going to keep doing what we do on the Church Politics podcast. But we think we need to put out much more content. We think that the Church Politics podcast isn't enough. And so really what we'll be doing with this newsletter is expanding what we do. And so you'll get more commentary, more policy breakdowns, all that stuff, but not just from me and Chris. But from other strong and faithful Christian minds that have been working on this stuff for years, our objective is to equip the church to develop a stronger public witness through articles, more podcasts, video content and more. The AIM campaign, again, has convened some of the top Christian minds in political and theological spaces from pastors and proven community activists to Howard social engineers and Harvard scholars. We've sought out believers who have thoughtfully engaged the big questions and wrestled with the great religious and secular minds alike. We've assembled a group of leaders who are unencumbered by ideological and partisan commitments respecters of no agenda made by human hands, but with unquestionable commitment to the community. And so the Invisible Institution uh, newsletter or IVI will officially launch in January of 2023. You got to make sure that you get on this list. You got to make sure that you're part of this conversation because we're going to be putting out a lot more content for you all so that we can help Christians see politics through a different framework to say 
go ahead and enjoy or go ahead and engage as a Republican or a Democrat, but you must first be a Christian. And here's what that looks like. Chris, talk a little bit about why you think IVI is going to be important for uh, what the AND campaign is trying to do and just the kingdom in general. Yeah, for sure. So um, folks who listen to this podcast know that uh, back in the uh, the, the primary uh, in Illinois, I ran for Congress. And uh, at the close of the campaign, I did a, a bunch of conversations, probably, you know, two dozen, more than that. Uh, conversations with folks, just talking about, you know, what we had done, uh, what the impact was and kind of where the the community of folks that we had uh, organized wanted to go uh, next. And when we sat down, uh, me and the team that did these conversations and tried to uh, process uh, a lot of what we heard, the kind of theme that carried through the the feedback we articulated it this way, that media is the new organizing. Um, you know, so I come out of community organizing and, you know, very much believe in this idea that it is about um, bringing uh, institutions together uh, in coalition and, and also being able to build and strengthen uh, Native institutions uh, that can ultimately produce political change. Right. Uh, and so, you know, some of the, the methods, though, that we that we understand from community organizing uh, have translated in today's world into uh, kind of media and content uh, creation. It, it's about building your institution. But one of the key ways of building your institution is making sure that that institution has its has a big email list, right, has a a, a following on social media, YouTube, podcast platforms, that type of thing. We understood, you know, one of the things that I learned, I mean, a couple decades ago now is that, you know, one of the things that makes an institution strong is that it has the ability to teach and reinforce values uh, inside of that institution. And the, you know, the, the media platforms that we have in, in, in today's uh, society are, are very important for leaders to be able to, to do that, to teach values, to reinforce values, uh, to kind of constantly remind uh, us of, of what we do. And so, uh, in order to build, um, this movement, right, uh, this, this opportunity that we have for, leadership in the public space that is higher than the division that we have in our politics right now, uh, that's greater than the division that we have in our politics right now. We need a strong uh, platform like this. Uh, and I, I, I was so excited when we first started having the conversation about building it um, because I see the hand of God. I mean, I don't, uh, I don't know how I could have or, or you could have put this together. I mean, I think we're both you know, smart guys and, and and very capable, but to be able to, you know, to to put all these folks in relationship with one another uh, in this particular moment, uh, I think is beyond our capacity, right? Um, and the folks who we have just been able to network with, and and not just network, but really build real friendship and camaraderie uh, and, and fellowship. I think to have that kind of group together with the experiences and uh, backgrounds and, and skill sets that we have, um, 
I, I think it was, I think it's, it's almost like a, a, a responsibility that we have to really leverage this, this group and this moment because we really couldn't have put it together ourselves. Like we couldn't have designed the network of people. Uh, and I don't think this is anything that any one of us could do successfully on our own. But I think this group can produce a very dynamic thing. Uh, and, and the last thing I'll say is that when we think about the, uh, the invis- invisible institution itself, the black church that was born in, you know, in the time of American slavery uh, and gave birth to the, the black church that literally changed the United States. Uh, I think that um, I'm inspired by hope, right? Because the, the kind of slave master class, uh, they actually understood spiritual power, right? Because the United States was, was really founded out of folks who understood spiritual power, who really were inspired by their faith in God uh, to found what I do think is uh, a great nation. But they convinced themselves that if they banned spiritual power from from Black people, enslaved Africans, and if they uh, ignored the capacity of those folks to build spiritual power, that that spiritual power would not exist. They deceived themselves in that way. It was that very spiritual power that was cultivated in the institution that ultimately overthrew slavery in this country. Uh, And I think that in our day, there are a lot of folks who understand political power and believe, though, that if um, if they cancel the the kind of civic voice of the faithful and ignore it and push it away, that it will not exist or cultivate or grow. Uh, And I think that this platform is going to be an opportunity to also make that community of folks one day regret the idea that they thought they could just cancel it, ban it, push this voice aside. Because I do think there there are many, many more uh, what we call the politically homeless in this country than than most people in that kind of bifurcated power structure that we have right now. Uh, I think there are way more of us than those folks uh, really think exist. Uh, And this is going to be a powerful way to begin to coalesce those folks. Yeah. And I would repeat again that this is for everybody, right? We are coming from kind of a black church context from that history, um, from that ethos, but we're one body. And so that we're inviting everybody into this conversation. And we know that other traditions have a lot to add, have a lot to add to the conversation as well. Okay, so, man, I'm just really excited about this in the conversations that we've had with the folks that we brought together who are going to be contributing to this. We're going to have some great articles. I mean, we're really going to speak into this space. And this is one of the reasons why probably I think it was probably early this year. I really went in on protecting new media. On whether you like somebody or not, I think it was the, the, the conversation about Joe Rogan, whether you like him or not, you don't let people just shut down folks who are outside the mainstream, because I think it provides a huge chance for Christianity, which might not be, you know, uh, at this moment, part of uh, invited into polite society to still have organs with which to communicate and get their message out. And so when you when you defend a principle just like you defend religious liberty, you don't just defend it for yourself. You defend it for even people that you might disagree with because it's it's about the principle. And so this will be, bring some new media to you. More details to come. But January of 2023, we will be launching the Invisible 
institution newsletter, IVI. Looking forward to that. Hopefully you all are getting ready for it. We'll be talking about it a lot more as time goes on. But be ready for that newsletter because I think it could uh, really be helpful to, to what we're trying to do as an institution and just to Christians living their everyday life and trying to engage in a better way. Anything else, Chris? No, I'm just uh, I'm very, very excited about this and, uh, you know, encourage folks to engage when we bring this thing out. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the AND campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the AND campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. We are back on the Church Politics Podcast. According to the New York Times, Chris, um, in order to reap millions of dollars in fees, some universities are partnering with betting companies to introduce their students and sports fans to online gambling. For instance, Michigan State has a deal uh, that's worth, I think, $8.4 million with Caesar Sportsbook. LSU has signed a similar deal. The University of uh, Colorado accepted $1.6 million to promote sports gambling on campus, and they get $30 every time someone downloads the company's app and uses their promotion code. Ever since, Chris, and this is, this is in the article, ever since the Supreme Court's decision in 2018 to let states legalize uh, such betting, gambling companies have been racing to convert traditional casino customers, fantasy sports aficionados, and players of online games into a new generation of digital gamblers. Major universities with their tens and th- tens of thousands of alumni and a captive audience of easy-to-reach students have emerged as an especially enticing target for these betting companies. This is troubling for me, Chris. And I think it goes, you know, I think in some ways it kind of goes along to some of the stuff we've been talking about lately about just kind of letting our guard down to things that people at one time would have said, hey, that's probably not so smart, whether it be the drugs uh, or now gambling. We become a lot more casual about things that if we look not too far in the past and even in the present, really, if you look deep enough, can be really harmful to a society. Um, if somebody wants to gamble here and there, look, I'm not here to tell you that you, you know, tell you exactly what to do. But just understand the way that gambling has impacted families, the way that gambling has impacted people and just to know that it is very addictive. And so for universities, not just to be you know, promoting this to fans, but really promoting it to students, 
it was one thing when when they had all the credit cards on campus and were letting kids mess up their their credit so they could get a little money from the credit card companies. It's another thing that you're making millions of dollars on possibly students becoming addicted to gambling. I have a problem with that, Chris. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly have a problem with it. I think it's uh, it's one of those times where you wish you uh, still had a Congress that kind of functioned um, so that I, I think in that kind of environment, somebody would already be looking at this because this is completely uh, insane. Um, and I, I think it just harkens back to what we talked about uh, in the first block, because it's, it's one of those things where we in, in this time in our society, like we have to constantly be looking at that tension between individual uh, and societal impact. Right. Because you, you might just look at this and say, you know, kid wants to gamble, let him gamble. But if if kids in mass, college students in mass start getting addicted to gambling, they may have made that decision on their own. But those those negative impacts accrue to the society at large. And so there is a there's certainly a, a, a right and I think maybe even a responsibility for policymakers to actually look at this and say, this is not good. And so, yes, we will restrict, you know, the quote unquote private institution, the individual liberties of these uh, students or, or whatever kind of like, you know, progressive sounding uh, argument, you know, you can make or, uh, you know, and then you make their conservative arguments that you can make because you talk about private institutions and that kind of thing. Uh, but you got to get beyond all that stuff and ask yourself, like, is this right? Like, and if you just ask yourself that question, it doesn't pass the the, the sniff test. Uh, it's it's kind of dumb. Yeah, and and I mean, look, it seems like in the world today we do so much to make things look cute that are really ugly. You know, how how many people have lost their lives due to gambling? How many people have gotten in debt and and lost everything they had due to due to gambling? The truth of the matter is, when it comes to gambling, the great majority of people will lose. So if these kids get into gambling, it may seem fun, but the great majority of them will lose their money. They'll lose more than they won. That's just the rule of it. Or no companies would be in the business of uh, uh, casinos and gambling. So what exactly are we promoting here? And how do we get to the point in society where, hey, we I think, you know, I'm not necessarily saying it should all be illegal. We can have that conversation when we want, you know, at, at some time. Right. Um, I'm not a fan of like I would never vote for casinos or anything like that. We can have the conversation whether adults should be able to gamble here and there. That's that's a different conversation. But bringing this to young people at a vulnerable time and potentially leaving them with an addiction that could last for the rest of their lives is completely irresponsible. And like you said, there should be legislators. There should be a Congress that says, hold up. Since y'all don't have the sense to think about what you're doing and how the impact that it could have, we're going to regulate it so that you have some sense. Because the the Supreme Court decision is one thing that has nothing to do with the Congress coming in and saying, well, here are within that decision. Here are some of the regulations that we're going to put in place. But I have no expectation that something like that is going to get passed anytime soon. And, and it goes to exactly what you were saying. Take us take us out, Chris. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that it's, it's important, the point that you raised, and it is uh, in the article that this, uh, the age group, that college age group is disproportionately more likely to become addicted 
uh, to gambling, right? Because of, you know, the, the, the young age. And so that in and of itself to me is enough for uh, a, a sensible policy maker to come in and say, we're going to make a policy uh, that, you know, that, that makes this, you know, illegal or ridiculously difficult to do uh, so that we can protect those young people and not just protect them. Because again, like I think folks get a little, you know, antsy about like putting regulations on people and people have to be able to live, you know, their lives and express themselves and that kind of thing. But a lot of times, and this stretches across a lot of policymaking, what we call an individual decision, the impacts accrue to the entire society. And that's when policymaking is appropriate. And this is certainly one of those times. Yeah, I I agree with you there. Well, we got to cut out because we got to do another episode for our Patreon uh, subscribers. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, you'll have uh, another part of this episode. Uh, We've got some questions about uh, my sports tribalism theorem, things of that nature. So we're going to cut out on this episode, get ready to record for for Patreon. Uh, But y'all know what it is. As usual, you get it. Uh, The Ancamp, you get what it is, Ancamp. I'm messing up my own uh, outro. Uh, there's a cross that neither p- political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Campbell. Well, I'll let you. Kingdom. Kingdom. Oh, Lord. I said kingdom.